Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California, in the midst of our 12th atmospheric river. And as always, I am joined by... Uh, Bob Bezenko, I'm in Houston at Happy Spring. Yep. Uh, and today, we're excited to be joined by Trevor Aronson. Uh, welcome to the Green and Red podcast, Trevor. Uh, and we are going to be talking about uh, Trevor's explosive uh, podcast called Alphabet Boys, which reveals the secret investigations of the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, and other alphabet agencies. Uh, season one is called Trojan Hearst, which details uh, FBI efforts to infiltrate and disrupt uh, racial justice movements in the summer of 2020 in both Denver and, as we have found out this week, Colorado Springs. Uh, Trevor is an award-winning reporter for The Intercept, uh, author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, and co-host uh, of other podcasts such as American ISIS and High Rollers. Um, Trevor, uh, you know, just kind of kicking off because you have this new article that came out yesterday called uh, The Honey Trap, the FBI used an undercover cop with pink hair to spy on activists and to manufacture crimes, which is related to the kind of bigger story that we're going to get into around Denver. We had you actually just lay it out a little bit of what happened in Colorado Springs um, in, you know, in the summer of 2020. Yeah. So, so the Denver investigation, which we'll get into, ended up prompting this separate investigation because the informant in Denver had provided information to the FBI about an activist during the summer of 2020 who was active in both Denver and Colorado Springs. And so the um, FBI then launches this separate investigation in Colorado Springs. And, and what they do is essentially exploit a partnership that exists in most cities around the country between local law enforcement and the FBI, this thing called a Joint Terrorism Task Force. And the FBI, through the JTTF, or the Joint Terrorism Task Force, recruits a young female cop named April Rogers and, and basically assigns her to infiltrate the racial justice movement and left-wing activist community in Colorado Springs. In that city, there's a, a nonprofit known as the Schnook Center that has an office space that they make available to um, left-wing organizations and political organizations uh, to use. And April Rogers, the undercover cop, came in, suggested she was a sex worker and wanted to get active in, in politics and, and social change, and volunteered for uh, the Chinook Center. And so the Chinook Center you know, gives her a volunteer position. What they didn't know was that for a year, she was essentially rifling through um, membership records, email accounts, and providing information to the FBI about specific activists. And at the same time, once she had established trust, she started running um, operations with the FBI in which she would introduce activists to two undercover FBI agents who would then try to um, get them involved in gun running conspiracies, get the activists to purchase or sell illegal guns. They were they were ultimately unsuccessful in getting any activists to commit that crime, but it shows you kind of the levels of that the the Colorado Springs Police Department working with the FBI went to in trying to not only surveil and infiltrate this this activist community, but then also attempt to 
set them up in crimes and trap them in crimes that then could show that this activist group was involved in guns and other other serious criminal activity. And, you know, one, this actually very much will probably make references to this, but this very much uh, sounds like, you know, COINTEL style operations that we saw in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and this is very similar to also what the informant in Denver was doing. Uh, but then also what you reveal in your article, which also to me has shades of, of COINTELPRO, is the uh, FBI's social media exploitation program, which which comes out in this article too. Could you actually ex explain what that is? Yeah, so this is a fairly new program and something that I think the public doesn't know nearly as much as it should about, which is the FBI's attempts to basically build intelligence files using uh, publicly available social media uh, material, as well as potentially material that isn't publicly available, such as, you know, the privacy settings on your Facebook page. If you make something private, there's still a question of whether the FBI is getting access to it. But what we know from records that have been uh, released through the FOIA or through litigation is that the FBI in the summer of 2020 used this program called social media exploitation to monitor who was attending um, events by monitoring the Facebook event pages that that um, activist groups were using. Um, the records show that they did this in Washington, D.C. and Seattle. Given those two cities, it, I assume you can assume that it likely happened in many other cities as well. Um, in Colorado Springs, what we know is that the uh, FBI was working with the Colorado Springs Police Department to build files on activists using social media exploitation, using programs and um, infiltration of the pages of the social media to, to provide information. And then what they were doing was pulling photos from the social media uh, pages, you know, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, in order to kind of complete their profile of these activists. Keep in mind, the FBI is doing this without warrants. They're, they're building these files on people who are not suspected of criminal activity. You know, the only thing that has triggered the FBI's interest is their First Amendment protected activity, their um, their political activism. And what, what was revealed in the Colorado Springs investigation by accident by a police officer working with the FBI who had his body camera on was that the FBI had furnished the Colorado Springs police with intelligence reports on activists. And so one of the reports that you see him rifling through um, on his body cam is a report that shows the pictures of the activists who are engaged in a, in a, in a protest or a march that day. And it's like a rogues gallery of, of protesters that they're to be on the lookout for. And all of those photos were then pulled from social media to create that report. And so what it's showing is that the FBI working with local police partners is monitoring and data mining social media profiles of activists who did not commit a, commit a crime and are not suspected of committing a crime at all. And, you know, revealing to some extent that the FBI is basically surveilling people based on their First Amendment protected activity. Let, let me ask you a question about method, uh, because as I read this, what really surprised me was the you know, availability of, of the information you found through FOIAs and declassifications, because, you know, sometimes historians, we can't get stuff from 20 years ago, but it sounds like you were pretty successful, which is good news, I guess. But uh, did you get much of or most of what you asked for it? Were you surprised even that you were able to get it, get it a lot of these the documents? So the documents related to social media exploitation, which again, which you don't know is enough about in my view, um, many of those documents that, that I, I reviewed and cited came from litigation through a, an organization called Property of the People that was involved in FOIA litigation and kind of getting some of those records out of the, of the government's hands. Um, and so that was quite helpful. But then in order to 
you know, tell the story of what happened in Colorado Springs and later and also in, in Denver, um, that really relied on a source providing me with material to understand that. So that was, um, you know, internal FBI reports and undercover recordings of the informants. And so in, in those cases, um, you know, it's unlikely you could get them through FOIA in, you know, it would take decades until they'd become available. So in, tho in those um in, in those circumstances, it required a source providing them to me. But usually my work in these kinds of uh, stories is, is a mixture of those things, documents and recordings that sources leak to me, as well as, um, you know, material that I'm able to get in the criminal court record or civil court record or through a FOIA or a FOIA litigation. That was impressive. Seymour Hersh-like. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. That was really interesting. <laughs> One other thing, just to kind of follow up on that sort of, uh, as I read it too, you know, I was thinking about the activist community because, you know, Scott, I, as we go through the study, there's a lot. And within the community, there are either snitches or there are people who just aren't real smart. And it, I didn't get a sense from what you wrote that these people actually got a lot of good stuff. Now, it could just be that the people there weren't really doing anything worth worth noting. But um, were, were there people within the activist community who were kind of leery of what was going on, you know, kind of had some reservation, were trying to be careful, warning others to be careful? In in in, Den in the Denver case, that was true. In the Colorado Springs case, it, it wasn't as true, in part because there was more of an organization in Colorado Springs. The Chinook Center works as kind of an umbrella organization. And I think they were they were trusting in, in the sense that when April Rogers, the undercover cop, came in, they weren't immediately suspicious uh, of her. And I think this is where it gets at the challenge that I think a lot of activist groups have now, as they did in, back in the 1960s, which is, how, how can you kind of be vigilant against infiltrators while at the same time not doing the government's work by essentially snitch jacketing or bad jacketing all of your fellow activists, right? And I think that that in part is where, you know, that conflict somewhat benefits the government because I think in Colorado Springs, there was a, a, there was a willingness to accept people and not assume that they're infiltrators, which is a good thing. But then how you balance that, I think, is, is the real challenge. But, you know, it wasn't until, you know, in the Colorado Springs case, what ended up happening to reveal that there was an informant was that a, a police officer in a body cam video, the same one who was rifling through the intelligence report, makes a comment, you know, on, on live wire, you know, about informants and undercovers being in the in the march, and he and then he describes the undercover. Um, and that's what triggers the activists to then realize that they're, they've been spied on by the community. Um, again, kind of a Keystone Cops moment that, you know, just shows that the, you know, what the FBI was doing. No, fortunately. The hot, the hot mic and, moment. Uh, yeah. Right. Fortunately, as you study this, that's that's actually to our advantage because I think people have this idea that these people, even at the highest level of the FBI, are really good at what they do. And in fact, a lot of that, Keystone Cops is a great, great description, so. Yeah, and actually, and, and with the with the larger kind of alphabet series, uh, excuse me, alphabet boy series that we're doing, that that's really what we're trying to do as well is to kind of like lean into some of the absurdity and humor that is in these cases, in the way that the cops just, you know, I mean, obviously, if you look at pop culture, you know, through you know the last few decades, the FBI is consistently portrayed as this, you know, very professionalized, perfect agency, and in in, in many cases. You know, having looked at cases, you know, over the last 15 years, you know, it's it's amazing kind of how, how much there's a Keystone Cops aspect to a lot of their investigations. My, my other question on Colorado Springs is that, you know, we recently had this mass shooting at a gay club at Club Q uh, where the FBI had, had talked to the shooter, but there didn't seem like there was a deep investigation where they instead the Colorado Springs office actually spent a lot of their time doing 
you know, going after the left, infiltrating left groups. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm going to guess they spent a lot of resources on that, like financial and time, staff time, whatever. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, if you could, like, just kind of comment on that. Like, why, why are we seeing such a focus on left-wing protest groups versus, like, you know, people who run neo-Nazi websites talking about mass shooting? Yeah, I think that was one of the striking things that, that came out of the Colorado Springs case, which is that as they were investigating and trying to set up these left-wing activists and gun-running conspiracies, ultimately unsuccessfully, they were given a tip that this man who would later shoot up the nightclub um, in Colorado Springs, you know, was building a bomb, was making threats against his family, and they investigated that person and then promptly dropped that investigation in less than a month. And I think this gets at kind of the internal biases within the FBI, as well as um, you know, their perceptions of threats. You know, one of the contextual things that I think is important is that after 9-11, the FBI was given this power known as an assessment, which allows them to investigate people without a predicate if they can articulate that it's for, you know, national security reasons. And so the, 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 the reason for this power, you know, was meant to be you know, in the, in the immediate years after post after 9-11, if someone called in the FBI and said, hey, my neighbor's building a bomb, you know, that wouldn't normally be enough to launch an investigation. But out of, you know, concerns of terrorism, they wanted to give the FBI that flexibility to investigate that kind of tip. And what that has transformed into over the last 20 years is the FBI using this power um, in ways to investigate all sorts of people, um, but then having to make very you know, quick judgment calls of whether to continue the investigation. And what we see is that there appears to be, at least in this case, as in others, a bias toward um, investigating left-wing activists rather than, you know, a, a right-wing person. So the person in Colorado Springs ran a neo-Nazi website, was accused of building a bomb, was, you know, making threats to his family, and they, and they dropped that. And at the same time, they then continued for more than a year this investigation in Colorado Springs of these of these activists, and to me, I think it just gets at the internal biases within the FBI. I mean, the 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 irony I think in this moment is you have Jim Jordan in Washington now holding the subcommittee where he's trying to build this narrative that the FBI is internally and inherently biased toward um, against right wing actors and going after them specifically when that just isn't true at, at all. And in fact, if you look at the history of prosecutions just in the post 9-11 era, you know, you see many, many cases where the FBI and the Justice Department, you know, going back to the Green Scare issue in the early 2000s to, you know, the hundreds of cases targeting Muslims after 9-11, you know, those, those types of cases are far more common than cases targeting right-wingers. And then in fact, when right-wing, far-right far right actors are you know, investigated and prosecuted by the Justice Department, such as abortion clinic bombers, for example, you know, those, those assailants are usually charged with non-terrorism charges, whereas left-wing actors and, and Muslims are, are almost always charged with terrorism-related charges. And so there is this disparity, but this disparity is the opposite from what Jim Jordan and um, other Republicans are trying to create this narrative around. You know, it's interesting, in one of the episodes around Denver, you talk actually about Maslow's hammer which is that the FBI sort of suffers from that because after 9-11, they were basically told to be a hammer. And so therefore, everything was a nail to them in which they hammered. And I, I thought that was actually an interesting way of, of looking at how that internally their, their system is working. Yeah, you know, in the context, you know, my, my kind of history of coming to the story is that in, in the previous 
10 years or so, I'd done a lot of reporting on the FBI's counterterrorism practices and the use of informants and stings with the idea of, um, of you know, the FBI looking for future threats and finding you know, maybe a loudmouth in a local Muslim community and then using an informant to say, hey, do you want a bomb? And then when that person moves forward in any way, they're then arrested and it's presented to the public as if this person was a real and capable terrorist on their own, even though it was largely manufactured by the FBI. And and I'd asked a lot of FBI agents, often off the record on a background, like, you know, is this really the most effective way of, of handling this situation? Like you have this young man troubled for whatever reason, making these incendiary comments. If you showed up at his door with your FBI suits on, and knocked on the door and said, hey, you're under investigation. In my view, there's a good chance that that guy's gonna be like, oh, I crossed the line and I'm not gonna go any further, right? Instead, they put together this elaborate sting, you know, and, and this guy gets sent away for 12 to 20 years. And the, the response I would often get from FBI agents is, well, we're not a social services organization. We're, you know, a criminal investigations organization. And so if this person is doing this, you know, saying these incendiary things, the only recourse we have is to set the trap and see if he falls into it. And again, I think that's what gets at this Maslow's hammer idea that this, you know, they are seeing everything as a potential terrorism threat and not so much maybe in some of these cases of just like a troubled young man who probably could be scared straight pretty easily, but instead you're gonna put, you know, the, the power and resources of the state together and in investigating him and ultimately imprisoning that person. Hey folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Bazenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcast. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. Maybe we could actually shift a little bit to um, to Denver, uh, which is the sort of bigger part of the story of, of the podcast series. And so that details the uh, infiltration by the Denver racial justice movement by uh, Mickey Windecker. Um, hope I said his name right. Uh, and maybe you could actually tell us, a little, lay that story out for us a little bit as well, which is like, it's just amazing. Uh, it's astonishing i just have to say yeah so the, the context for me in coming to this as well is like having reported on these the post 9 11 terrorism stings when the when the summer of 2020 came and i was uh, as all americans were seeing what was happening on my screens um you know the context for me was that the fbi had this long history of using informants and sting operations to in the counterterrorism context and three years before the fbi had defined black 
political activism as so-called black identity extremism, that there was a new form in the FBI's view of domestic terrorism. And so I remember seeing that summer thinking, you know, that the FBI was predisposed to see this kind of demonstration, not just as a demonstration, but as something more sinister, and that they may choose to investigate it using these various powers that had been perfected and expanded in the post 9-11 era. And I, and I looked for cases and examples of this. As you may recall, there were a number of things that happened that summer that were incredibly disturbing, right? DHS kidnapping people off the streets in Portland as just one example. And we, there really wasn't a full understanding of what the FBI was doing. And I, I was searching for that, that kind of answer or the window into that. And then uh, a source was able to provide me with these internal records and undercover recordings in, in Denver. And what that showed was that the FBI had hired um, this man named Mickey Windecker, a violent felon with a history of convictions for sexual assault and menacing with a weapon, and had, in, had, had hired him to infiltrate the racial justice movement in, in Denver. And the, the reason that they'd hired him was that he had come to them and basically said, hey, I'd been going to these protests and I'd heard several activists say things like, you know, we need to burn the city down. Things that were incendiary, but nonetheless protected by free speech rights. And yet, and, and with that as the only basis for the- Things that they were being said publicly too. Yeah, things that were being said publicly too. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, the, the irony is that, uh, the irony too is that uh, the, the, the person, the main person that Mickey provided information on to begin with is this uh, black activist named Zebedias or Zeb Hall. And he had said that Zeb said, we need to burn the city down. Well, Zeb was on like live stream YouTube videos saying the exact same thing, right? And, and so the, the idea that he was providing this like secret information to the FBI was just absurd. And, uh, and so they, they nonetheless hire him to, uh, to enter into the movement and as an activist. And you know, what's, what's striking as well is that, that Mickey wasn't the type of guy that you'd expect to see among the racial justice demonstrators. He was, he was much older than the traditional demonstrator. He was pushing 50, but that I think more, uh, you know, kind of uh, more surprisingly, you know, this was a guy who dressed like a biker. He had tattoos all over his body. He wore like a Punisher necklace. And most striking, he drove a silver hearse that he had a bunch of guns in. And so he then, you know, shows up and kind of asserts himself as, you know, a guy who'd served in the French Foreign Legion and fought with the Peshmerga in Iraq, and I can show you guys how this is done. And, and that was his shtick, right? And I think uh, a lot of people were, you know, to answer a question that came up earlier, a lot of people in Denver were, were skeptical of that. We're like, who is this guy? But one of the things that I think Mickey did that was either accidental or was deliberate, but either way ended up being sophisticated in how it worked, was that he became an ally of uh, a number of young and, and fairly naive activists with the Young Democratic Socialists of America. And I think a lot of the other activists who were skeptical of Mickey saw him hanging around these young activists and they were like, oh, well, maybe he's okay. And, and that's, I think, how he was able to disarm a lot of the suspicion that otherwise someone like him uh, would, would generate. You know, uh, uh Lots of lots of interesting aspects come up, and you had kind of mentioned snitch jacketing or or, or bad jacketing earlier, and that's actually a tactic that Mickey uses. The, there's there's a number of activists who are like probably older and more experienced. Uh, one's name is Trey Quinn, who's very skeptical and trying to sort of like kind of play a little bit of a cat and mouse game with Mickey. It seemed like, but you know, then Mickey's response is to try and snitch jacket him with the other uh, with the younger activists and probably other people in the movement. I'm wondering if you could just like comment on that to tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So, so obviously, you know, snitch jacketing, as the church committee report documented, was used to devastating effect against black political movements in the 60s, the Black Panther Party in particular. And what we see Mickey do is once he is inside the movement, there were a number of people, including um, uh, an organizer named Trey Quinn, who were quite sus- who were quite suspicious of him. And Trey devises a kind of plan to figure out if, if Mickey is who he says he is. And so Trey goes up to him and says, asks him in all hypotheticals, like, you know, this isn't really working, this peaceful protest stuff. What if we, what if we did more? Like, what if we, I don't know, you know, burn down a neighborhood? What do you think would happen? And Mickey's like, oh yeah, I got a guy. We can get this done. Let me introduce you. And to Trey, that was just all he needed to know. Like that meant this is the behavior of an informant. But Trey, you know, getting at, I think the challenge that a lot of activists have is, was really skeptical of, of snitch jacketing Mickey because he wasn't sure. He suspected. So Trey's, uh, Trey's plan was just to kind of keep him close, but, you know, know, you know, in the back of his mind that this guy could be an informant. And, you know, Mickey started to realize that he'd fallen for Trey's trap and that he, that Trey had the potential to expose him. And Mickey is making, you know, thousands of dollars working for the FBI. And so if he's exposed as an informant, that payday ends. And so what Mickey does in order to protect his cover and also to protect his, his pay is he then starts telling the other activists that Trey's an informant and claims that Trey came to him asking him if he wanted to blow up a, a white supremacist bar. None of that was true, but it was enough to make the other activists suspicious of Trey. It also didn't help that Trey had a previous felony conviction and he'd been open about that. And, and Mickey was able to use that as to say like, well, look, here's this felon talking about violence. You know, he must be a snitch, right? Even though in reality, the opposite was true. Mickey was the felon talking about violence. And, but Mickey's snitch jacking really has this devastating effect in Denver, the same way it had a devastating effect in the 60s, in that it sowed confusion among the activists. And a lot of the leaders who were quite effective ended up losing confidence among the other activists and the other activists pulled away for fear that they were informants. And that's exactly what happened to Trey Quinn. Um, and then what Mickey does is once the snitch jacketing has created this kind of leadership vacuum, he then essentially fills it. And so by the end of August 2020, when a lot of the demonstrations around the country were, 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 be, were becoming a, um, a little more uh, you know, violent, you know, in Denver, it got very violent. And a lot of that had to do with Mickey in a leadership role, encouraging people to bring weapons, encouraging people to bring body armor, encouraging people to attack, you know, police stations in, in Denver. And, you know, I think what, what's so interesting is that, you know, snitch jacketing was one of the most, you know, sinister methods of, of the counterintelligence program. And, you know, we then see it being used once again in the summer of 2020 um, against similar kind of racial justice groups. And so Mickey, you know, is kind of motivating the crowds to escalating violence. You know, there's protests at police stations. There's, I, I think at one of those, like trees got set on fire and there's a lot of clashes with police. A lot of activists are getting like severely hurt by police responses with like non-lethal weapons. And then Mickey also goes on a different track with two other people, uh, Zeb and Bryce, where he's actually trying to encourage them to take, you know, conspire to basically assassinate the attorney general of Colorado. And uh, could you actually tell us a little bit about that? Because uh, that seems to be an important part of the story. For sure. Maybe, yes. Maybe, at least up until now, the kind of biggest part of the story. Yeah. So, so Mickey's 
methodology seemed to have two tracks. One was kind of a broad one, which was to encourage violence broadly. So, you know, become a leader in the protest movement, encourage these um, demonstrations, which had up until then been largely peaceful, to become more violent. And we see the effects of that in the in the last week of August 2020. Um, at the same time, what Mickey does is try to stitch together a plot, a, a really elaborate plot, to assassinate the attorney general. And so what he does is he takes Zebedias Hall, the, the man he had initially reported to the FBI, and another man, Bryce Shelby, who had this reputation for you know these very incendiary speeches at, at demonstrations. And Bryce had been given the address of the attorney general because one of the activists trying to be provocative gave a speech where she read off all of the home addresses of elected officials. And Bryce happened to write this down. And Mickey is encouraging Bryce to do something, you know, with the attorney, with the attorney general. And so what he does is he arranges a meeting with Zeb Hall, a lunch with Zeb Hall, Bryce Shelby and, and him. And that's where Mickey is encouraging them to get involved in the supposed plot to assassinate the attorney general. What's so striking about it is that Bryce Shelby, who the FBI makes it seem was the, the genesis of this plot, keeps mistaking the attorney general for the district attorney. It's clear he doesn't even know the difference between the two offices. And in addition, Bryce's gun, he has a rifle, has a bullet jammed in it. So the idea that this man would be able to assassinate, you know, elected official that he can't decide whether it's the attorney general or the district attorney, and his gun is basically broken, is the guy that the FBI is putting forward as the mastermind of this plot. And so over lunch, Mickey is encouraging them to get involved. Zeb is like finally like, no, I'm, I'm not getting involved in this and backs out. But Bryce, you know, for reasons that he, he describes as being like wanting to kind of see what's going on, decides to take another lunch with, um, with Mickey where he's introduced to an undercover agent going by the name Red. And Red and he take a drive to the attorney general's um, house where they, they talk about maybe getting involved in an assassination plot. Bryce is very, very vague. And, you know, finally, Bryce is kind of waffling, says maybe he'll, he needs to go travel, maybe he'll, you know, do something later. And the undercover agent says, well, look, I, I think we could hire someone to get this done. You know, it'd be like five or 600 bucks. And that's when Bryce was kind of smart enough to be like, no one's killing the attorney general for 500 bucks and, and realizes that there's something suspicious going on and, and backs out. And um, ultimately, obviously, there's no plot to assassinate the attorney, attorney general. Bryce is not even charged with a crime because he didn't cross that line. But it shows you that the FBI was really trying to engineer a plot that, were they successful, would have been the type of thing that would have made the national news, right? Like in the summer of 2020, as the Trump administration and right-wing media were really trumpeting this idea that... Black Lives Matter and anti-fascist activists were potentially dangerous. You know, Trump had even absurdly talked about making Antifa a terrorist organization. Um, you know, that if there was this plot announced of two black activists attempting to assassinate Attorney Attorney General, it really would have fit into that whole narrative that they were trying to construct. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you see the FBI essentially trying to construct that plot, ultimately unsuccessful, but reveals kind of the ambitions they had in you know manufacturing these crimes that would that would fit this very specific narrative and you know that if i recall i don't remember the exact timing of this but this is also the period where a, a right-wing group is actually plot gets caught plotting to kidnap the, the governor of michigan gretchen whitmer and uh there's also like a, a informant involved in that is that correct 
yeah, that all that that arrest happened in in October, and um, in the months before when this is happening is is that as well. I mean, that that plot had similar problems in the in the in the sense that there were questions of to what degree the FBI was was leading that plot, and for that reason, you know, you often see uh, right wing media really really putting this up as a as an example of of government abuses of of right wing groups. Um, but that that case was fairly anomalous in the sense that there. There have been a few cases like that that have targeted right-wing groups and FBI stings, but more often than not, these are cases that are targeting people like Bryce Shelby and um, and Zeb Hall, who are more left-wing activists. Clearly, these agencies want to sow discord and they want to intimidate people and frighten them. Um, and you know, we've seen this every red scare, right? The anarchists in the twenties called Telpro. Uh, and often, you know, in the case of, you know, for instance, like I forget how many like Italian anarchists were deported and arrested. And we did a show about people who were still you know, facing charges from the summer 2020. But in Denver and, and Colorado Springs, how many people were actually kind of brought into the system, were arrested, or you know, more than just kind of the the, the pain and suffering these people you know caused? But you know, um, you know, what actually happened? Were people actually arrested? Were was the government able to kind of get charges filed against activists? So, in the case of Mickey Windecker, in the in the federal investigation. Um, since the assassination plot did not work out, Bryce Shelby was not charged with a crime, but they did use uh, Colorado, they did use the evidence in that case, the, the undercover recordings, to file a red, red flag law case against him where they took his gun for a year. And then what happens in episode nine, which comes out uh, next Tuesday, is we, re- we show how Mickey had basically pushed Zebedias Hall into purchasing a gun for him. So, you know, M- Mickey had been unsuccessful in getting Zebedias Hall to, to move to forward in the supposed plot to assassinate the attorney general, but he asked Zeb to buy him a gun. And what Mickey did that was confusing for Zeb was that he had told him he was a felon, but at the same time, he had all of these guns in the back of his car. And so there was an ambiguity in Zeb's mind about whether Mickey was allowed to have a gun. At the same time, Zeb describes how he was terrified of Mickey because Mickey was this guy who showed pictures of dead ISIS soldiers on his phone. You know, in some of those pictures, he's standing above above those dead bodies. He describes how he's killed people. Zeb had actually, in one conversation, told uh, Mickey about his family in North Carolina. And so from Zeb's perspective, he's being asked by this very dangerous man to buy him a gun. And if he says no, what happens to him? And so Zeb um, ultimately is given $1,500 by Mickey to purchase a gun, buys the gun, and gives it to Mickey. And, you know, this is essentially, when you unpack it, a crime where the government used the government's money to give to the target to buy a gun, who gives it to the government's informant, who then gives it to the, the gun to the government, right? A crime with their, no, of no victims whatsoever. But ultimately, Zeb was charged with a felony for transferring a firearm to a, a felon, and ended up pleading guilty and getting probation. But that was the extent of Mickey's operation. So for all of their efforts to sew together this fantastical plot to assassinate an elected official, ultimately what they get are, you know, a gun charge against someone who had, you know, someone who had never previously committed a crime. Zeb is now a felon as a result. Um, separate from Mickey in Denver, as in a number of cities, there were there were a host of arrests of people for their roles in, in protests. Many of those cases, as in others across the country, ended up being dropped. Um, you know, there were people convicted of various crimes like vandalism and, uh, and others, but, you know, nothing, you know, nothing like a plot to assassinate an elected official, for example. And then in Denver as well, I think it's important to note that um, Denver was the first city where uh, a jury verdict 
um, uh, was won against the city for conduct during the summer of 2020. Um, a jury awarded $14 million to uh, a group of protesters who were injured that late, that, that last week in August 2020. The same week that Mickey was hyping up and encouraging protests to become more violent is the week that many of these protesters were injured by police, you know, firing Kevlar-filled bags of lead. One woman had all of her teeth knocked out from a, a sting ball grenade that exploded right next to her. And so some really horrible violence that took place that Denver is now, you know, essentially paying taxpayer money in, in, um, in, in civil liabilities for. And I think, it, you know, the question that we raise is to what degree did the FBI's role with an informant play in escalating the violence that ultimately caused, you know, greater harm to protesters and police and resulted in this, you know, $14 million jury verdict. Has, has there been any uh, civil suits filed against Mickey or the FBI and, and from that operation? Not that I'm aware of. Not, not yet anyway. Yeah. Um, there, there hasn't been any, any suits against, against Mickey, but this is all fairly new. I mean, we just revealed this about a month ago, so certainly I think it's possible. And, and uh, just a couple quick things on Mickey. In the end, he ended up getting paid about $20,000. Is that correct for this? So our, our payment records are incomplete. Um, the, the payment records we do have reflect about a two-month period in the late summer of 2020, and that's a, that's a little more than $20,000. But we do know that Mickey continued to work for the FBI through Zebedias Hall's arrest, which actually happens nearly a year later in July 2021. And so, you know, just extrapolating out, you know, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable to assume or conclude that Mickey was probably paid about $120,000 for the year, given, you know, the payment records that we do have, which is in line with FBI informants. FBI informants can make in excess of six figures a year if they're providing information to the FBI. And that really gets at kind of the, the, the rot at the core of the FBI's informant program, which is that these informants can make a lot of money. And they are then incentivized to essentially manufacture crimes or provide information that might be exaggerated in order to keep that money coming in. And there aren't a lot of safeguards in the system to prevent informants from running amok like that. And Mickey also like kind of prided himself on being a professional informant too. It's like there's there's a lot of instances where he did this prior to the summer of 2020. Like yeah, everything I from think... like calling the police up every time he saw a crime in his neighborhood. Yeah, I, I, you know, the earliest record that we have of Mickey cooperating is that when he was in Colorado prison in 2002 for a felony menacing with a weapon charge, he was approached by a prisoner to commit a murder. And instead of committing a murder, he ends up becoming a cooperating witness and getting, getting favorable treatment as a result. And I, I think Mickey, as a lot of informants learned, you can make a lot of money being an informant, being a professional snitch. And the, the records we were able to obtain suggested that there was this longer history of um, Mickey providing information to police in order to make money, which again should have been a red flag for law enforcement, right? I mean, they portray, or for the FBI, they portrayed Mickey's information about Zeb Hall, which instigated the investigation, as being some sort of like, you know, volunteer concerned citizen, um, and that, that he, that's why he came to the FBI. But the record on Mickey, you know, very clearly suggests that his motivation would have been as much. If, about money more than than anything, and that that should have given them concern about you know the veracity of the information he was providing, but but of course that didn't. You mentioned earlier like Jim Jordan's attack the FBI as being too woke, and you know the GOP has no problem unabashedly you know uh, supporting these violent right wing groups. Did these protests in Denver have any, not from the Democratic Party, but did they have any kind of local support to these support faith based groups or local political groups or anything like that or? Were they really kind of isolated, you know, propaganda that had taken over? 
Rob. There, there were a lot of. I mean, there were a lot of groups that had 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 support and had community support in Denver. I mean, I think one of the th- one of the things that the activists describe uh, their frustrations with, especially the black activists who were who were there at the beginning, was that there really was this kind of movement away from police accountability toward all various you know left wing issues, and that that the message had kind of frayed and and been diluted as as a result. And so I think that was that was part of it. You know, as you you and your listeners know well, but is not something that's often known by I think right wing supporters is that there you know the, these group the, the movement itself was very decentralized. That there were a number of groups that were all just kind of coming together. There wasn't a central organization. Black Lives Matter isn't a central organization, and so you know that in effect allowed Mickey to more easily I think disband the movement in a sense by by sowing confusion and snitch jacketing people just because. You know, a lot of these people were coming together that summer for the first time. They didn't really know each other. And, and that made the movement a little weaker, I think, than it might otherwise have been. You know, I'm not necessarily arguing for, you know, a central organization for, for activism, but I'm just saying that I think the loose coalition that existed in Denver as it existed in other cities um, allowed for kind of that vulnerability to, to be there. I'm going to shift gears a little bit back to more on the FBI. Um, you know, Christopher Ray, I believe, testified before Congress saying that they don't target people. They pay, they target people based on like crimes and threats of crimes and things like that, but they don't target people on ideology. And like thinking about the story in Colorado Springs, and then also thinking about about Denver, is like very much not the case. There, there's a, a term that they had actually used, which they have now taken away, called a, um, black identity extremist, and you know. Uh, I, I can also tell from personal experience that they've targeted like radical environmentalists and radical animal rights activists and things like that. And I'm wondering if you could just like actually say a little bit about that, about the the, the targeting of ideology, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's striking that that Chris Ray has gone before Congress and basically flat out said we don't investigate ideology. But you can look at specific case files and see that that's exactly what they were doing. Um, you know, that's that's specifically what they did in Denver, given that. The information Mickey provided was all First Amendment protected activity, you know, you know, uh, speech from activists who were left wing racial justice activists. The other thing that was quite striking in the Colorado Springs investigation was that a search warrant application that was written by a local police officer who was working with the FBI through the JTTF. So effectively someone who was deputized by the FBI in that search warrant application He's describing how he's investigating these activists involved in a march, and he specifically lays out that his suspicion of them is that they were wearing red, and they had red flags, and he, and he refers to a website that refers to how red is associated historically with political activism around communism and socialism, and that was the basis for their investigation. So very clearly describing you know, political activism and ideology as being the, the basis for that investigation. And I think if you look back, I mean, this, this goes back long before 9-11, but just if you look at kind of the, the 9-11 period, you, you see a very similar type of activity happening um, in the Green Scare with a number of the cases that they investigated of environmental activists and animal rights activists. And then, then secondly, in um, investigations of Muslims in the, in the in 9-11, um, in the post-9-11 era, you know, one of the things that the FBI was specifically um, concerned about, according to documents, were Muslims who prayed often, right? There was a belief that the more outwardly religious a Muslim was, the more likely that person was to be an extremist. And again, like using ideology and religion as the basis for investigation. And so this has been going on for a very long time within the FBI, and it's quite absurd 
that you know the FBI director will go before Congress and basically say no, that doesn't happen when you know there's you know twenty years at least of of, of records of that happening specifically in the post 9-11 era. Your reporting is really great. It's at the Intercept and other left media covering stories like this. But um, in the Denver community, was this story kind of bigger? Did it get uh, more attention from just kind of the local newspapers and television stations, or was did it make kind of more on the, on the left? Yeah. No, I mean, it, so since the podcast has come out, we've like, we've gotten a lot of coverage in in Denver. You know, the NPR station, the Denver Post, and so this really has resonated in the community, and and isn't something that is only kind of being uh, viewed from like a, a left wing perspective in in the media. I think from a national perspective, this story has gotten more attention from left media than than right. Uh, but at the same time, you know. It's it's I think it's kind of gone you know it's it's been one of the stories that has crossed over you know I mean I was surprised like Dinesh D'Souza tweeted it you know just to give you like an idea of like you know there is a some crossover with this with this story happening but in the Denver community in particular um, I don't think anyone sees this in an ideological lens that's that's at least my assessment based on the media coverage that we've gotten there I think you know I think Denver media uh, has generally viewed. The, the story as being concerning and, you know, wanting to know more about what, what's happened, but also something that answers a lot of questions. I mean, there really always were a lot of questions in Denver about why the demonstrations became so violent so quickly, and then separately why these demonstrations kind of suddenly stopped. And Mickey's involvement answers a lot of that in that, you know, he was encouraging this violence while at the same time snitch jacketing. And that caused a spate of violence in the late August 2020. But then as a result of his snitch jacketing, you know, you see kind of a lot of people back away from the movement and, you know, ultimately it collapses. I'm kind of curious if the FBI, since the series has come out, has commented on the series or actually, for that matter, has Mickey said anything publicly about it? So we, so in our reporting, we went to the FBI well ahead of time, asked for interviews, they declined them. We then sent a list of, of questions and asked for written responses. We were then told we were not going to get any responses from the FBI. And so they did not comment to us at all. And then a number of news organizations have covered uh, this, including The Guardian and The Daily Beast. All of the news organizations, including the local ones that have covered this, have gone to the FBI for comment, and they have consistently said no comment. Um, so... To, as of now, the FBI has not responded in, in any meaningful way. Um, we did get, you know, on the, on the elected official front, we did get Ron Wyden, you know, basically expressing concern about what, what was happening um, and asking for a greater level of accountability uh, from Congress, given what was what was shown to have happened in Denver in Colorado Springs. Um, as for Mickey, you know, we I, I was able to reach Mickey in the final episode. You'll hear my conversation, brief conversation with Mickey, um, in which he denies that he was an FBI informant. And then, you know, threatens to sue me if I, you know, accuse him of being an FBI informant. Um, I then explain that I, I text him kind of images, still images of the undercover recordings to prove that I had all of this and then ultimately refused to um, respond to me in any way. But we haven't heard from Mickey since the, since the series came out. And I'm going to guess that this series is not going to lead to any sort of meaningful change within the FBI or the government. And I, we've actually done a number of shows recently on, on Cop City, on what's going on in Atlanta. I think Unicorn Riot actually just put a new st a story out last week based on some FOIA of them surveilling uh, Stop Cop City activists in Chicago. And uh, I'm wondering if you have any sort of hopes of any sort of like meaningful impact within the system. I mean, I know you've been covering, you've been working this beat for like decades. And so just like to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, it's been discouraging. I remember, you know, one of my er, one of my editors early in my career, you know, gave me this um, metaphor about you know reporting having impact, and and it was that like it's a lot like you know pounding a nail into a wall that like you hit it once, you're people are gonna you're gonna hear it, but in order to kind of like you know bury it into the wall, you have to kind of keep tapping it, and and I feel like you know that from a journalism perspective is very similar. Like you can have one story and people talk about it, but then it's easy for you know, government agencies to just be like, oh, that story was a while ago and nothing happened. I feel like in order to have change, you really need to keep on these issues. And that's been why I've wanted to keep on the FBI for, you know, over 15 years now. That said, I'm not seeing meaningful change. And so it is it is certainly discouraging. Um, you know, I, I, I was really discouraged more recently, you know, given we were talking about this Jordan committee um, and the absurdity of it. You know, to me, this offers Democrats a really great opportunity to say, okay, you want to talk about government abuse by the FBI? Let's bring on some of the green scare defendants. Let's bring on some of these Muslims. Let's bring on like the case in Denver and talk about these. But I, I think one of the weird things that's happened in the in the post-Trump era is that, you know, traditionally it was it was Democrats on the left that were more critical of, of federal law enforcement and the FBI. And then there was this strange shift that happened where you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend because the FBI is investigating Trump. You know, Democrats, I think, have become more defensive of the organization. And what you see what, or what I've seen so far in, in Jordan's committee is is apparently like the Democrats taking this position that, well, if the Republicans are attacking the FBI, we should probably defend the FBI. And I, I think it's it's ultimately a really feckless move. And it's something that is like not going to result in any meaningful change, you know, and I think you know, I think there is, there was this opportunity for the Democrats to, you know, use this committee to highlight some of the FBI's abuses, but they just chose not to do that. And and in that way, it just makes me very discouraged about, you know, any sort of reformations within the FBI. That's what I was getting at earlier. The GOP will defend the most violent, overly violent, right-wing groups. And, you know, people who rely on the Democratic Party as a counterweight, I mean, maybe during the church committee years, but um, really since the not going to see that and i think different kinds of strategies are, are need to be figured out because you're not going to get any kind of support i mean aoc support uh what had a uh, military recruiting event yeah so. yeah i mean i think one of the issues that we have now is that you know the reason that i think denver was allowed to happen you know obviously there's this a lot of the talk around my reporting since it's come out is like, oh, there's a new COINTEL Pro or COINTEL Pro 2.0. And it, it's not exactly that because what ended up happening is that in my view, you know, you had all of these powers and authorities that were granted to the FBI in the post 9-11 era. And, and none of that received the, the level of oversight that it needed to. Those powers have persisted. The war on terror has largely waned. And yet the FBI has all these powers that it can use against um, you know, other people, right? And this was when they were passing the Patriot Act, a number of critics of the Patriot Act, this is exactly what they said, that if, if you give the government this power to go after terrorists, it's not going to be too long before they use those powers against non-terrorists. And and that's essentially what they did in, in Denver. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's just in large part a product of 20 years or really more, but 20 years since 9-11 of the, of the FBI not receiving adequate oversight from Congress and still to this day not receiving the, the appropriate amount of oversight that its powers deserve. Another good example of that, not to bring it up again, but like the, the domestic terror laws that people are being charged with right now in Georgia around Stop Cop City, actually that legislation 
originated out of uh, Dylan Bruce shooting of a black church in South Carolina. And it's just, it's civil libertarians at the time said this is going to be an issue for people on the left, more of the right in the future. And, and yet, you know, Democrats went along with it in the Georgia state legislature. I mean, not that they have a lot of power there anyway. No, but I, I agree with you. There's this perception. And I think that, you know, the challenge with terrorism from a government oversight perspective, and I think one of the reasons that we didn't see enough oversight of the FBI after 9-11 was that it's very difficult for elected officials to be critical of the FBI because I think many of them fear they go back to their home district for re-election and their opponent can say, well, look at look at your local representative. He's weak on terrorism, right? And obviously this is a very nuanced argument and it's it's something that is like hard to really have on cable news these days and hard to have on Twitter. And I think those, you know, those kind of create a, a kind of perfect situation where the country's kind of ill-equipped to have politicians willing to, to deal with these kinds of issues. I think yeah. it was Matthew Dowd, who was Bush's speechwriter, said once we get them using our language, we've won. And so whenever I hear liberals say, this is terrorism, this is terrorism, I was like, but you might want to backpedal on that because, you know, this is essentially what they've been using for, for decades now. For sure. You know, I've listened to like, you know, liberal, uh, I, in, I live in Tampa and there's a, a left-wing community radio station and sometimes they'll refer to like, um, you know, these these politicians that are passing laws to restrict uh, women's um, reproductive rights, they'll refer to them as terrorists. And we're like, ah, you know, really shouldn't be using that language in that context. But you do see it in that way. Right. You see, and I think it's that's that's really been the troubling thing is that we've we've really expanded terrorism powers and really what is the definition of terrorism, you know, to such an extent that we've then kind of taken the war on terror and brought it home. Right. The whole idea of the FBI defining black political activists as so-called black identity extremists and and kind of labeling that a category of domestic terrorism is really a product of, a, of us just kind of bringing the war on terror home and seeing, you know, our own fellow Americans, not as fellow citizens, but as potential terrorists. I, I think we're approaching the end of our time, but I have one last question for you, which is season one is going to wrap up. You have two episodes left, I think, that haven't come out. Uh, what's in store for season two of Alphabet Boys, if you're, if you're able to say yeah, so, so we have a teaser for season two at the end of episode 10. Um, and season two is a very different story. It's about the DEA's um, narco-terrorism stings. And so one of the things that the DEA has done very frequently in the last 15 years is use undercover informants to find people who are willing to buy and sell weapons or, or procure weapons for the FARC, which had, had, had until recently been designated as a foreign terrorist organization. And, um, and so this was really just the DEA kind of ginning up you know, cases in order to justify its funding. But in this particular case, this it's a story of a former FBI informant who's approached by a DEA informant, not knowing that it's a DEA informant, it's a FARC agent, and he offers him an opportunity to get involved in this deal. And that FBI informant calls the CIA and reports the whole deal before it happens and then moves forward in it thinking he's working for the CIA and is ultimately prosecuted. And so it's this really strange story that gets the DEA, the CIA, and the FBI all mixed up in a case where no actual crime was occurring. Everything was basically, you know, manufactured by the government. And so in all this, so we're hoping, you know, the idea of Alphabet Boys is each season tells a different story, but we really want each season to underline this question of like whether the FBI and, and other federal law enforcement agencies are are catching real criminals or whether they're basically creating them in these elaborate stings. I uh, just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, looking forward to season two. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Trevor Aronson, 
award-winning investigative journalist for The Intercept, talking about uh, his podcast series, The Alphabet Boys. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, definitely listen to it. You can find it on all of your podcast streaming platforms. Um, and if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you want to make a donation, go to our website, greenredpodcast.org, and hit the support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Trevor, it's been an amazing hour talking to you. Very excited to have this episode. And hopefully, maybe we can come back around season two. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.